Well, did you hear about the man that was so humble in his church that he was awarded a saucer-sized gold medal for humility? Did you hear about that? Unfortunately, the elders had to take it away because he went around showing it off. It's hard to truly be humble, but we're going to talk about humility today because this is a fundamental virtue for, for all Christians. And if you listen to that old country song, do you remember, it's hard to be humble, Lord, when you're perfect in every way? Many people sort of think of themselves that way. None of us, of course, are perfect. We have more flaws than we're aware of. And thankfully, the Lord doesn't reveal all of our flaws to us all at once. But as the Lord continues to work in our lives, he does reveal slowly by slowly stinking thinking, improper attitudes, things we say or do or places we go that are dishonoring to him. And he sanctifies us. If we're in his word and listening to his spirit, we should always be moving further and further toward Christ. And part of that is to increase in our humility, increase in our humility. So in the word of God, we have a message here in Philippians chapter two about humility. And essentially we're being asked a question to ponder. Do we have a high view of lowliness? Do we have a high view of of lowliness, which is another word for humility. Now, where do we get humility from? Do we just walk around and try to find people that look humble? No, our ultimate source, the source of our humility ultimately is the example and attitude of Jesus, our savior. He is the source and the example of true bona fide humility. So if you wanna understand what true humility looks like, which isn't just being quiet, passive, and saying nothing. You need to look to the example of Jesus Christ. So we're going to enter into Philippians in chapter 2, and we're going to study the first 11 verses. Now, for those of you that like theology, that like doctrine, you're going to like this sermon because this sermon is a, in part a doctrinal sermon. This is a critical passage in the word of God that helps us to understand in a very detailed and in-depth and profound way who Jesus is. So it's not just a be humble by doing this, be humble by doing this, and be humble by doing this message. It's not, a, it's not just about moralizing God's people into some sort of a veneer of humility. Humility ultimately grows in our lives the more we truly understand how humble Jesus was. That's really the, the, the fountainhead of humility. Following Christ translates into humility and of course other Christ-like virtues. So prior to this, the apostle Paul, who was writing this from his prison cell to the Philippian church, had encouraged them and talked about God continuing to do a good work in them and encouraging them to stand firm. And then he says at the beginning of this passage, so in other words, if what you've read before and digested before is true, and it is true. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy. So we'll just pause there sort of mid-sentence. If any of these things are true. So what do we have here? Jesus' example, we're going to learn, is our incentive to pursue a humble life that honors him. Jesus is the incentive. 
Jesus is the fountainhead of humility. Look at the text. If there's any encouragement in Christ. So it's centered on Christ. And we have in this first verse four if clauses. Now, if clauses can be hypothetical, right? So you could say, well, even if I could leap a building in a single bound, but have not love. That's a, that's a hypothetical if. I, I can't do it unless it's a, a doghouse, perhaps. But it makes a point. If I could do that, but then there are other if clauses that aren't theoretical or hypothetical. They're actual. And these are four actual realities in every true Christian's life. If there's any encouragement, meaning consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort, if there's any fellowship in the Holy Spirit, we're in partnership with the Holy Spirit. If there's any affection, meaning tender sympathy towards others, if these things are true of you, and they are, maybe not perfectly, but they're growing in your life. If these things are true, then what we're going to learn is they should translate into obedience as follows. This is what obedience looks like. So if you have these things, and if you're a Christian, you do, not theoretically, but you, you have these things, then it should translate into the way you live your life, your attitudes and your actions, right? So what we don't want is to have a faith that has no effect. Instead, we want a faith that has an effect on the way we think, act, and feel. What does it look like? Well, because we have Christ, we're supposed to live differently. Your life should look different than the life of the non-believer. So if you have these things, the passage continues, complete my joy by being of the same mind. So that's the first thing. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So that first section there is focused on unity. We'll talk about that momentarily. And then there's a second verse, which is verse number three about sort of your attitude and your approach. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So there's that whole others-orientedness that we're being called to embrace here. What is it rooted in? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. Again, he's the source. I emphasize that because you do know that other religions teach the need for humility. But the source of their humility is different. It's sort of like just rev yourself up. Just, just be humble. Just self-deprecate. But we know because we're fallen creatures apart from Christ, so we don't have the capacity to be humble. But we have Christ, and Christ's life is in us, and Christ's spirit is with us, as verse 1 reminded us of. So our humility is anchored in, again, I'll use the word fountainhead, the fountainhead of humility is Christ. Now, Paul in chapter one was very clear that he was already very joyful about the Philippian church. When he looked at them, he's like, wow, this is quite a church. You guys got a lot of things going on that are positive. But then he encourages them to continue to do even better, right? So you're, you're a healthy church, but 
become healthier. A few things that you need to do in order to become healthier, verse 2, you need to have the same mind. We need to have one-mindedness. Now, every once in a while, when there's division or turmoil or differences of opinion among Christians, you'll have the kinder Christians. In every church, there's some very kind people and there's warriors and then a lot of people in between. You'll have the kind people say, why do we have to argue about this? Let's just get along. Let's just be unified. John 17, Jesus prays for unity. Now, that's not the kind of unity that he's talking about because you can't have unity without substance. You can't have unity without a foundation. So this isn't a just sort of, throw up your hands, no matter what we believe, say, act or do, we're just gonna, let's just all, can we just all agree to get along? This is, this is false humility. This is false unity. This is not the kind of unity that Christ is calling us to because the one-mindedness that we're being called to is a one-mindedness in Christ. So it's being one-minded about who Christ is, about what his mission is, about what his values are. That's what Christ is calling us to. So without Christ, it's just fake unity. It's just a veneer. But the, the more each of us draws to, close to Christ, the more unified we are. So sometimes I use this illustration of weddings, but it works really well for churches as well. Picture in your mind a triangle. And at the top of the triangle is Christ. And there's two sides coming down. And then you have the bottom two corners of the triangle. And here we are in relationship. Maybe you're on one side, I'm on the other. And we're trying to figure out, how do, how do I get closer to you? How do we become more one-minded, more like-minded? Do we just sort of talk to each other a lot? No, we have to have a source. So if I'm on one side of the triangle and I'm drawing upwards and closer to Christ and you're on the other side and you're drawing upwards and closer to Christ, the space between us gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. So unity among God's people is when we draw closer to Christ. When the mind of Christ becomes my mind and your mind, we have unity. So this is a Christocentric, a Christ-centered unity that he's calling us to. So we need to strive for that. And then we need to love others as Christ did. That means we even need to love our enemies. You may not like them, but you got to love them. Pray for their salvation. Speak to them convincingly, kindly. Introduce them to truth. Rebuke them with a desire to see them redeemed. We need to love one another. This is what Christ did very well. Study his example. And then third, this is the third in the to-do list. We need to count others more significant than ourselves. Now that's really hard because by nature, we are all incredibly self-protective. Sometimes we even pursue relationships with others and give to them and seek to bless them. And, but deep down, it's because we're getting something out of it. And of course, we all do benefit from relationships. But really thinking about others and counting them more significant than you is the high calling of Christ. So that's three things to do. And then there's one thing to avoid, which is selfish ambition. Nothing wrong with being ambitious for Christ. But too many people are ambitious for self. We need to strive for selfless 
ambition instead of selfish ambition. Again, this isn't moralism. It's founded in Christ, and therefore it's founded on the gospel. Now, because we've had 2,000 years of church history, there's been a lot of opportunity for false religion, for false gospels to arrive, to arise. And some would take these kinds of teachings about humility and virtue, and they would say, oh, so to be a Christian then is to just do certain things. That's what a Christian is. You just sort of do certain things. If you want to be right with God, make sure you obey the Ten Commandments. If you want to be right with God, go to church. If you want to be right with God, do this, do that. It's a workspace gospel. We're not going to preach that here because that's a false gospel. But then on the other extreme is a, is a false gospel that says, well, it's all about grace, so you don't have to do anything. So God's been gracious. He's been loving. Yeah, you know, you can be fornicating, stealing, lying, cheating, coveting, whatever. It's not great, but... That's a cheap grace gospel. The true gospel says, no, we're saved by, we're justified by, we're made right by, and exclusively by the grace of God. But if you've truly been transformed, you will increasingly embrace the patterns of behavior that Jesus so aptly demonstrated, one of which is humility. So we're not trying to moralize you, understand this. We're not trying to just... You know, come to church and we'll make you a little better citizen for the week. This week, your, your, your assignment is to be more humble. No. It's a lifestyle that flows out of God's gracious work in your life. So it's salvation by grace through faith alone, but it's not by a faith that remains alone. It is followed by works Sometimes people say, oh, Protestants are into grace, Catholics are into good works. No, no, no. The true gospel is we're saved and justified by grace, which inevitably and necessarily will produce spiritual fruit, good works. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So again, to to anchor it in Christ, you need to understand who Christ is. And the more you understand who Christ is, and what he did, and just sort of meditate upon this. So there's some profound thoughts that Paul presents us with. The more you sort of meditate upon and really digest who Jesus is, it's like, wow, if he did that, then I certainly should be able to do that. So we're going to have a little theology lesson today, if you don't mind. So I'll just take my pastor hat off, and I'll put my professor hat on. And we'll do the kind of thing that we do in Bible college and seminary. And we'll, we'll kind of get deep and we'll, we'll talk about the biblical doctrine that we call Christology. Christology is the doctrine of Christ. It's the Bible's words about Christ. And what we're going to see is that Christ isn't just some nice guy that went around with long hair and baby blue eyes and a finely trimmed beard and sort of smiled and touched people and walked on air. There's something about Christ that is incredibly profound. He is both fully God and fully man, not 50-50, but 100-100. And it's an amazing thing. So listen to to how the scriptures, and by the way, this is kind of cool. Some Bible scholars think that this was an early Christian hymn. 
This might be a song that early Christians sung. But regardless, it should drive us to worship. Verse 6 through 11, one of the most famous Christology passages in all of the New Testament says this about Christ. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there's some deep doctrine here. We're going to parse this out more or less line by line. You remember earlier, we're called to have the same mind, the same mind that Christ had. So if we're going to have the same mind that Christ had, then we need to know the mind of Christ. Kind of makes sense, right? Upon which the commands all hinge. So chapter two, verses six to eight, has traditionally generated a whole lot of debate throughout history for hundreds of years about Christ's kenosis. You ever heard that word before? How many of you have heard the word kenosis theory? Just throw up your finger or your hand. Okay, a few of you. So this is a a, a doctrine in Christian theology called the kenosis theory. And the kenosis theory hinges on the word emptying. Notice there, Christ is God, and it says in verse 7, but emptied himself. It's like, hmm, what did he empty himself of? And frankly, any conversation about God emptying himself of anything makes me kind of uncomfortable. So there's different perspectives. What does it mean when it says Christ emptied himself? Now, before we address that, we must not lose sight of the central theme of the passage. The central theme of the passage is not the kenosis of Christ, the emptying of Christ. The central theme of the passage is the humble example of Christ, which the Philippians and all Christians throughout history are called to mimic and follow and pattern their lives after. So while discussions about Christ's divinity and his humanity and his attributes and deep theology is necessary, it's not the primary purpose of the text. So when we're talking about these things, in order to make sure we have a proper understanding of Christ, let's not just get big-headed, more knowledgeable, and fail to put it into practice. Really important for us to understand this. So in other words, whenever we study theology, including the the deep things of the faith, we do it for whole purpose application. We want it to transform us. I want to think more clearly. I want my attitudes to be more Christ-like. I want my actions to be more Christ-like. I want my words to be more Christ-like. So in this respect, rather than calling this the kenosis passage, let's let's remember that really it's the example of Christ passage. That's the, the primary purpose of this. 
But let's get into our Christology. So first of all, the premise of the argument here is though he was existing, and by the way, this is in the present tense. So speaking of Christ coming into the world, though he was present tense in the form or morphe, it says in the Greek, from which we get the word morphology, from which we get the word morphing, It's about shape. It's about substance. Though he was in the form of God, this is how the passage begins. And what Paul is arguing for here, or presenting rather, is the eternal nature of Christ as God. Christ didn't just become God at some point prior to his incarnation into the world. Christ is eternally God. In fact, we know he was present in creation because in John 1, he's called the Word, And in Genesis 1, the word spoke the world into existence. So Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is the person within the triunity of God that spoke the world into existence. So indeed, we can refer to him as our creator. And whereas his outer appearance, if you look at verse 7, was in the likeness of man, Morphe implies that he was also fully God. So we can legitimately say that Christ is both fully God, who is eternal, and then took on the form of man. We call this the incarnation, not to be mistaken for carnation milk. The incarnation. This is when Christ was enfleshed. He took on human form. So when we talk about Jesus Christ, contrary to perhaps what you might hear in Jehovah's Witness theology or Mormon theology or Islamic theology, we defend at all costs that Christ is fully God and fully man. But this Christ, who's fully God and fully man, it goes on to say, did not count equality with God a thing to be seized did not count equality with God a thing to be seized. And this is where people scratch their head. Well, how can Jesus be God if he's not equal to God? What what is Paul, what argument is Paul building here? Well, we would say that just like with you as a human being, there's a difference between substantive authority and, or substantive equality and functional equality. So let me give you an illustration of this just to make that super clear. You're a human. You're a human. You at the back, you're a human. You're a human. You're a human. We're all humans. And in our humanity, we are all absolutely equal, right? Y'all agree with that? Give me an amen. Okay, we're all equal. Are we all equal in our tasks and functions and roles? No, no. Some of you are parents. And if you're a child, you are responsible to listen to your parents. doesn't mean you're lesser, a lesser human. But you have a lesser role currently. So we understand in relationships that a person can have substantive equality with another person. But that substantive equality doesn't necessarily translate into positional equality. We can have different positions. Some people are over others in terms of their authority. So here, 
when, when we talk about Jesus not being equal to God, we're not saying he was lesser God, but he submitted himself in his role and function and position to the will of the eternal father. So equal in deity, not equal in function. And then it says here that he, he didn't consider the thing to be seized or grasped. So there's some different opinions on what that means. So one, one option would be to say, when he didn't grasp onto his authority, authority, what that means is that in his incarnation, into his coming in, in his coming into the world, he resolved not to no longer cling to the authority that he already had. But perhaps a better way of understanding this would be to say that he had it, but he didn't reach for it. So he didn't give up his authority, but he didn't reach for his authority prematurely as Adam did. And instead he waited till after his resurrection to put his full authority over life and death on display. So he hit the pause button in terms of manifesting the fullness of his authoritative capacity over life and death and you, etc. Now this makes the most sense because in this, in this passage, we're still speaking of the incarnated state of Jesus Christ. We say then oftentimes, we try to describe this to folks, that Christ remained fully God, but in his incarnation, he set aside the independent use of his attributes as God and humbled himself in that respect. The passage goes on to say he, he made himself nothing. It now it doesn't say here what he explicitly emptied himself of, but the next phrase gives us the answer. He made himself nothing. Look at the text. He made himself nothing, which in our minds is like, oh, he must have given something up. And this is where it gets confusing because we think about this just as humans. He made himself nothing. Okay, what did he give up? What does it say next? By taking on the form of a servant. It's like, okay, just a sec. How do you give something up by taking something on? How does that work? It can be confusing, right? He made himself nothing by taking on. We would say, well, isn't taking on the opposite of emptying? Well, not if you're perfectly divine. Think about it. God is perfect. He has no deficits. He has no flaws. He has no blank spots in his personhood. So for perfection to take on servanthood and humanity is strangely might sound like a bit of a paradox. In some senses, an emptying of oneself taking a limited humanity is an amazing thing for an unlimited God to do. Think about that. The unlimited God of the universe took on limited humanity while at the same time remaining fully God. It's fascinating. Christ therefore emptied himself of his authoritative position in exchange for servanthood. He did not empty himself of his divinity. But he emptied himself of his authoritative position in exchange for servanthood. He didn't relinquish his deity, and so the emphasis is not really even on what he literally gave up, but what he took on. 
There was no exchange of divinity for humanity. It wasn't like he stopped to be God. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be God for the next 33 years. I'm just going to kind of be human. No, he, he remained fully God. But he added to his absolute perfection, servanthood and humanity. How did he do that? The text says he was born in the likeness of men. By the way, a little, little applicational point off to the side here as you think about this in terms of your own life. A lot of people think wrongly that to serve others means you have to give everything up. Get out of any position of authority you have, get rid of all your money, get rid of all your wealth, get rid of all your opportunity. That's what service is. It's just get rid of everything. But in actual fact, Jesus just added servanthood to, to, to his full divinity. And there might be times when God does call you to give things up that might be idols or that might stand in the way of you being a servant, but in actual fact, you can be a servant by keeping the position, by keeping the money, by keeping the things that you have and taking all those things and leveraging them. Think about this, leveraging them to serve others. So if you're in government, you don't have to step out of government to serve God. You can leverage your authority to serve God. If the Lord has blessed you with wealth, you don't have to burn it all in the backyard tonight. You can leverage your wealth to serve God. So it's not just about giving up, but adding, overlaying it all with the attitude and mindset of a true servant that can make you an absolute dynamo for the purposes of Christ's kingdom. Back to our text, the text says that he took on the likeness of humanity. Now, the particular word here there's a couple words in the Greek language. You know that the New Testament was originally written in common Greek. There's a couple words in the Greek language that can be translated as likeness. And one of those words means exactly like. But that's not the word being used here. The word here doesn't mean exactly like, but more or less like other men. So Jesus was similar to us in that he was 100% human and we're not going to diminish his humanity in any way, shape or form. But admittedly, there were still differences between Jesus and you and I, and there always will be. Why? Because he also happened to be God. And therefore, he was capable of participating in the transfiguration. He was capable of performing miracles. He was capable of being resurrected from the dead, being born of a virgin. That's pretty impressive. How many of you here were born of a virgin? If your mom told you that, she's lying. Right? So he's, he's fully human, but he's, he also has a, a leg up, you could say, in that he was fully God. He took on the likeness of man, and the text goes on to say he was found in human form. So chapter two, verse eight, stresses the depth of his servanthood by plunging the reader deeper and deeper and deeper into the degree of humility that Christ showed. So for this point, you're like, wow, this is getting a little beyond me. Well, we're going to go deeper yet. The word of God is inviting us to think deeply and profoundly about the person of Christ. In fact, if you look at the, the passage, it's, it's almost like it's taking us deeper and deeper and deeper into these profound thoughts. It says he humbled himself, meaning that he he abased himself, he reduced himself. 
He became unassuming. He became modest. We're like, okay, I get that. And then the next step is, well, he became obedient to the point of death. And then the next step is even death on a cross. Like death is bad, but admittedly the worst and most humiliating form of death in the ancient Near East would have been crucifixion. It was vicious. It was somber. It was torturous. It, it was prolonged. It was shameful. Many of you have probably seen the passion of Christ where he's on the cross and he's got his loincloth on. Folks, generally speaking, crucified victims were crucified absolutely naked from head to toe. It's very shameful. Very vicious. Very torturous. So he died, but he didn't didn't just die in a car accident or die of a massive heart attack. He died and permitted himself to be put to death in the most vicious humbling of ways. So we're called then to consider the sacrificial nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did not walk away from deity. He walked toward humanity. He walked toward us. He added something completely unnecessary to his perfect divinity in order to save you. This is the ultimate act of service. In order to accomplish something extraordinary, he took on flesh so that in his flesh, he could take on our sins. And to do so, he emptied himself of the independent and full use of his divine authority in order to become a servant. In order to die a wicked death. And it was in that lowly state. We know what the result was, don't we? It was in that lowly state that God exalted him to a place where he now eternally receives honor and glory and praise. And in fact, the Holy Father himself is glorified through that. This is why we are so committed to the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ over the worship and ministry of the Christian church. And we will not relinquish that to any state authority in any way, shape, or form. We will not bow down and worship other gods. We will not not allow mere men to claim authority over the sacraments, the preaching, the baptisms, the Lord's Supper, the discipline, the gathering of Christ's people. Because our precious Savior shed his blood for us. And it is the responsibility of qualified men who are tasked to oversee God's people to continue to call God's people to meet and to worship him in war, in famine, in plague, in life. And ultimately, we're still going to be worshiping him in death because we will, in fact, have new life in Christ. In terms of how we respond to all of this, well, I think it's kind of obvious. We're supposed to bow, number one, and we're supposed to confess. This is where the passage is pushing us. We need to bow to the king. 
And we need to ask ourselves some serious questions as Christians. Is Christ actually my king? Do I live that way? Is that how I think of him? Is it evident to others that Christ is my king or is he just my king on Sundays for an hour or two? Is Christ king of your job, your family, your marriage? Is he? If he is, yeah, you might take some heat for that, but other people are going to be like, wow. I want some of that. In this passage, it talks about everything surrendering to Christ. All things will bow. All things will surrender. This could mean both humans and all things that form creation itself, which would match up with Romans chapter 8, verses 19 to 22, which says the same kind of thing. The whole of creation will eventually bow the knee to Christ. But the references here to knees and tongues, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, obviously implies humans. And we are the primary recipients of God's redemptive graces in this world. He didn't die for squirrels. He didn't die for your cat. He died for you. Because you are made in his image and likeness. You are precious and special and loved by him. And then it says, even everything under the earth will bow. So this probably is a reference to the departed dead. Those that have gone on before us, both the saved and the lost, will eventually bow the knee and acknowledge that Christ is king. They really will. Every tongue, it says in verse 11, will confess. By the way, confess, confessing something with your tongue, if you don't actually mean it with your mind and your heart, is completely useless. But at the same time, we can't just keep our profession in our heads and in our hearts. There's something about saying it. You know, if you love someone and you don't say it, it's not cool. If you're in a romantic relationship and, well, I know he loves me, but he never says it. It's going to be a problem. There's something, we're, we're, we're people, we're, we were made by words. God spoke the world into existence. There's something about words which just brings reality right out in front. There's something about words can destroy and words can bless. And if I say to you, listen, listen carefully. Listen, I love you. It's like, wow. There's something special about that. And when we confess, hey, Christ is my Lord. He's my savior. There, there's blessing in that. Not just, well, I, I'm sure you know. <laughs> I mean, look at how I live it. I'm sure it's obvious that I love Jesus. No, we say it. We confess it. This is the natural direction of true belief. We confess with our tongues because confession with our tongues represents a heartfelt recognition of his lordship. Now, when he says every tongue will confess, he's not advocating for universal salvation. In other words, as much as I'd like to believe this were true, it's not true that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and therefore every tongue will legitimately be saved, but every tongue will be forced at some point to acknowledge who the true king is. And some will mean it and some will have confessed it in this life and others will confess it unto damnation, unto eternal separation from God. Nevertheless, victory will follow his humiliation. Victory will lead to all, his, his humiliation, the, the humbling of Christ, the emptying of Christ, the servanthood of Christ. Ultimately, we know 
leads to his victory and to the degree that we follow him, we will be victorious as well. So dear brother and sister, now that we know about the servant nature of our savior, it's fascinating, isn't it? Very informative. It's fascinating and informative. But now that we know about this, we're called to live and to walk in his footsteps as well. So we acknowledge his kingship as he acknowledged the kingship of the father over his own life. We live our lives serving others, considering them more important than our own selves. And we do all of this knowing that as we follow him, we will also participate in his victory over death and darkness and disease. If Christ, who is God, was that humble, how much more should we, as mere humans, also demonstrate abject humility before Christ into the world around us? So let's pursue humility. Let's impress our Lord and give him honor and glory. And the Lord will bless us as a result.